Our Sunday morning series is called Rejoice. We're walking through the book of Philippians. And our passage this morning is the end of chapter 1, Philippians 1, 27 to 30. I think this is one of my favorite paragraphs or favorite passages in the book of Philippians. If you have the outline that's in your bulletin, I'm going to start off just by giving you the big idea and then we're going to try to lay a little bit of a foundation before we read the passage. The big idea is this. It's very simple. Paul urged the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He wanted them to live a life that was worthy of the gospel of Christ. A few things we need to iron out before we jump in and and talk about what Paul says here. First of all, we need to talk about the gospel. If you've been tracking through the book of Philippians, you have seen this word gospel seven, several times, excuse me, not seven, but several times. Look at verse five. Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel. Verse seven, he talks about, uh, it is right for me to feel this way about you. I hold you in my heart. You're partakers with me of grace and my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 12, He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 16, he says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And he talks about it again in our passage. He's talking about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. If you don't know what Paul means when he starts to talk about the gospel, you're going to have a hard time understanding Philippians 1. And so we've talked about this before on Sunday mornings. You've heard me run through this uh, very similar sort of presentation before. But let's just make sure we're all on the same page when we read this word gospel. The gospel is a message about God's holiness. It's a message about our sin. It's about uh, a message about what Jesus did for us on the cross, what, what his work was on our behalf. And it's a message about our response. And so it's very simple. The gospel is a message that there is a God who created everything and that that God is holy, holy, holy. He's set apart from us. He's different than us. He's above us. You can't think about him like you think about yourself or other human beings. He's altogether different. And this holy God does not tolerate sin, which is sort of bad news for us because the next part of the gospel is that we're sinners, And it's not just that we do things that are sinful, it's that when we're born and we show up on this earth, we have a sinful heart, a sinful nature. We have a bent towards sin. Before we ever do anything sinful, we have this problem of sin in our hearts. And the good news of the gospel, that's what gospel literally means, is good news. The good news is that Jesus came, he lived a life of perfect obedience where we have not, and he died on the cross taking the wrath of God that should have fallen on us. He took our punishment, he took our judgment, literally you could say he took our hell. And our response is not to pay God back. Our response is not to to do some religious thing or ceremonial thing or ritualistic thing that earns favor with God, but our response is to turn away from sin and to turn to God in faith, to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. And some of you this morning, as I just walked through that gospel about God being holy and we're sinners, Jesus dying for us and, and repentance and faith, you hear that and you say, I've never done that in my entire life. 
I've always thought church was just about you go, you try to be a good person. I've always thought that, you know, you, you try to earn your way with God. You try to do more good than bad, and you try to tip the scales in your favor. And maybe this morning you need to talk to somebody for the very first time about what it means to accept the gospel and to trust in Jesus. And I would love to visit with you about that today. One of our pastors or one of our elders would love to visit with you about that today. But my point right now is if you don't understand what Paul means by the word gospel, you're going to have a really hard time making sense of Philippians 1. And in this passage, he wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel. The next thing I want you to see before we jump in is this. What Paul's really asking the Philippians to do is to live or to act like citizens. And you don't really see it in the English translations. You can look uh, at verse 27 where he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Most English translations follow that pretty close, let your manner of life be worthy. But the Greek behind it, what he's really saying is, you need to live like citizens. You need to live like citizens. And they don't translate it that way in English because it doesn't really make a lot of sense of to us. We don't live in Philippi. We don't know their background. But for the folks who lived in Philippi who heard Paul say, you need to live like citizens, they knew exactly what Paul was talking about. Philippi was a Roman colony. I'll put a few pictures of Philippi up on the screen. That's what it looks like today. They had a a big massive theater and they had streets and buildings. And if you go there today, that's what's left of it. Some of the, the ruins that have been dug out. It was a Roman colony. And this was a big deal for the people in Philippi. This was not a small thing. Because they were a Roman colony, that meant all the people who lived in Philippi were Roman citizens. Even though they didn't live close to the capital, even though they were sort of in a distant province, all of them, because it was a colony, the city was a colony, were citizens. And because they were citizens, they lived differently than everybody else around them. Most of the people who lived around Philippi would have spoken Greek. In Philippi, they would have spoke Latin because they would have said, we're Romans. We don't speak Greek. We speak Latin. They would have dressed like Romans would have dressed. They would have laid their city like Romans would have laid their city out and built it a certain way and and designed things to work a certain way. They would use titles for their administrative leaders and their rulers that would be reflective of Roman culture, not Greek culture. Everything was changed in Philippi. Everything was a little bit different because they were citizens. Their citizenship changed the way that they lived. And what Paul's saying to this church is, your citizenship, because of what God has done for you through Christ, ought to change the way that you live. Hold your spot in Philippians 1. Flip over to Philippians 3, verse 20. He's going to come back to this idea later in the book. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not Rome, not Greece, not Philippi, not Jerusalem. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying to these dear friends in Philippians 1.27 is, you guys are citizens, not of Philippi, but of heaven, and your life ought to reflect that. Live as citizens. The way you live should be changed by the good news about Jesus Christ. One last observation is this. Sometimes I give you really profound observations, and this is one that I'm particularly proud of. Are you ready for this? If there's a life that is worthy of the gospel, 
then by definition, there has to be a life that is unworthy of the gospel, right? If he's saying to them, live so that your manner of life, you're living as citizens and it's worthy of the gospel, then by necessity, the implication is there's some way that they could live that would be unworthy of the gospel. And you've got to get it through your head and I've got to get it through my head that religious people many times, I'm not talking about pagan people, I'm not talking about atheist people, I'm not talking about people who hate Jesus, I'm talking about religious church-going people in the Bible Belt many times live lives that are unworthy of the gospel. I really don't care, neither does Paul, how loudly you sing the songs when we gather together in this room. Really doesn't matter. I don't care if you fill in all the blanks on the outline. I don't care how faithful you are in your Sunday school class. I really don't care for our purposes this morning what happens in this building and how religious you are and how spiritual you are. If you leave this building and you live a life that is unworthy of the gospel, it's all for nothing. And Paul is urging his friends saying, I want your life to be worthy of the gospel. And there's an implicit warning in there that you need to hear and I need to hear. It's that church-going people, whether they go to church in Philippi or Odessa, Texas, may end up living a life that is unworthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's warning them about. It's the big idea of this passage. He wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel. So look with me at the passage. We'll just read these few verses. Philippians 1, 27 down to 30. The word of God says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we take a few moments to look at this short passage, to think about these words that Paul wrote to his friends in Philippi, give us eyes to see the truth, give us hearts to receive it. Father, help us to hear the warning that's implicit in this passage that we, although we come and we do religious things and spiritual things and Christian things, we may accidentally live a life unworthy of the gospel. And Father, we don't want that to be true of any of us. As individuals, as families, we want to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And so we pray that you would help us to see truth in your word this morning and to apply it to our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One simple question this morning. How do you live a life that is worthy of the gospel? What does it look like? And I just want you to see a few thoughts from the verses we've read. The first thought is this, a life worthy of the gospel 
involves unity in the church. If you're going to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, it's got to be a life that is driving towards more and more and more unity in your church family. Look at verse 27. Paul talks about whether I'm coming to see you or whether I'm absent, whether I'm still in prison. I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. All of these words, he's just piling them up. You have one spirit, you have one mind, you're, you're striving side by side. He's saying you guys have got to be unified. Can I just tell you quickly, this is not really from Philippians 1, but can I just tell you how to destroy unity in a church? Gossip about other people. Assume the worst about other people. Talk about things that you don't know and you don't understand. People's situations and their circumstances. Talk about things that you're not privy to. And when you see a situation or you see a person in church who does something that rubs you the wrong way, you, you just assume the worst in them. Don't give anybody the benefit of the doubt. Assume the worst. When that person passes you in the hall and you say hello and they just keep walking, don't assume that they just didn't hear you. Don't assume that maybe they don't feel well or they didn't have a a good morning. Just assume they hate your guts. Assume the worst. Then go talk to it about, talk about that with somebody else. Gossip about them. Assume the worst. And then if you just want to take gasoline and pour it on that fire, judge other people's motives in church. I mean, you can't read somebody else's heart. You can't read my heart. I can't read yours. But if you want to destroy unity in a church, just judge other people's motives. I know why they said that. No, you don't. But just say that you do. Gossip about people. Always assume the worst. Judge other people's motives. Listen, right now at Emmanuel, we have a pretty good thing going. Pretty good thing going. Not a perfect thing, but a really good thing going. And I'm telling you, you know it can be lost in a moment. All you got to do is start talking about other people and assume the worst about the people who are here and judge their motives and their heart. And the unity that we enjoy will disappear in an instant. Paul says to this church, I want you to be unified. He knows what Jesus prayed in John 17, that God's people would be unified together. And he says, I want you to have one spirit, and I want you to have one mind, and I want you to be side by side united. It reminds me, most of you have probably seen the movie, uh, the movie Remember the Titans. You remember? T.C. Williams High School in Virginia is the first year they had this integrated football team. And if you've seen the movie, you remember nothing good happened for the team until they sort of were unified at Gettysburg Cemetery. They had to have a moment. They had to have an experience where they came together with one spirit, with one mind, side by side, and they were unified. And things took off after that. And church is really not all that different. If you want good things to happen in your church... You've got to be unified. If you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, you've got to fight for unity in your church. Look what Paul says in verse 27, where he says, You are standing firm in one spirit. I want to hear, Paul says, that you are standing firm in one 
spirit. The terminology he's using here is reflective of a military situation. What he's literally saying is, it's like you're a bunch of soldiers, a bunch of military men, and you're fighting together, standing together, and you're completely unified. One commentator I read this week compared this idea of standing in one spirit. He compared it to the Battle of Thermopylae, 480 B.C., There's a movie made about this, a graphic movie, but it's rooted in history. It's 480 B.C. The Persian army, led by Xerxes, is attacking a a loose alliance of Greek city-states. And there's a king, a Greek king named Leonidas, who leads a group of soldiers at Thermopylae, holding this pass as the Persian army is coming to advance. And depending on who you read historically, you understand that the, the Greeks, Leonidas and his men, were vastly vastly outnumbered. Some say 15 to 1, some say 30 to 1, some say 50 to 1. Vastly outnumbered. But they stand their ground in this pass at Thermopylae. And wave after wave after wave of Persian soldier comes attacking these Greek men. And for three days, outnumbered against all odds, incredible odds, they hold the pass because they stood together. They could have never done it by themselves. They could have never done it if they weren't unified. But the idea, and it's the idea that Paul is driving at, is that we stand together, united. And if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, what Paul's saying is you've got to fight for unity in your church. That leads me to the next idea. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? How do we do that? It involves striving for the gospel. Striving for the gospel. Verse 27. He wants to find them, Paul wants to find them striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm, that's sort of the idea of holding your ground. But then he goes on and he says, I want to find you striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Just to go back to a military example again, I think the idea here is the Roman phalanx. It's a group of soldiers, they stand in tight formation, and the way that they hold their shields and the way that they hold their weapons, they function as one unit. Alexander the Great came up with this idea, with this formation, the phalanx, and he conquered the known world with this group of men who would stand in formation and they would march side by side, much stronger than they could ever be as individuals, just charging an enemy, standing side by side and attacking. And the Romans took this idea after they took over from the Greeks, and they perfected it. And they used it to advance their empire all over the world. And Paul is saying, what I want you to do, if you're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, is that you are striving side by side like a group of soldiers advancing on enemy territory. Yes, I want you to stand your ground, to stand firm, but I also want you to strive and to advance the gospel. You know, if I asked you to raise your hands and I said, how many of you would consider yourself a Christian? I think most of you would raise your hand. Sunday morning crowd, most of you would say, I think of myself as a Christian. If I said to you as a follow-up question, how many of you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus? You're actively following Jesus. Again, I think most hands would go up. Some of you may start to second-guess yourself and say, well, I don't know, but I think most hands would go up. 
And then if I followed it up and I said, how many of you are true disciples of Jesus? Maybe you would lose a few, but I still think most of you would say, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Yes. Then if I asked you, how many of you are actively striving side by side with other believers for the faith of the gospel, we'd lose hands all over the room. You say, well, am I actively striving side by side trying to advance the gospel? I don't know. I come every Sunday morning. I'm here. You know, check me off on the Sunday school roll. But am I actively striving side by side with other believers for the faith of the gospel? And I just got to be honest with you. In the United States, we have this strange category of person who claims to be a Christian, claims to follow Jesus, claims to listen to Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus, but who totally ignores Jesus' command to make disciples. Such a strange thing that we have in our brains. There can be a person who loves Jesus listens to Jesus, wants to go to heaven and be with Jesus when they die, and yet right now, in everyday life, they're in no way, shape, or form striving to advance the faith of the gospel. That doesn't mean that every conversation you have, you turn and you start preaching to somebody. That doesn't mean that every time you have a conversation, you just start breaking into a Sunday school lesson and you get sort of preachy and confrontational with people. But it does mean that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, a learner, a listener, somebody who's actively following Jesus, that some way, somehow, you have to be involved with other believers standing side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. That's part of what it means, according to Paul, to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Verse 27, I want your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or whether I'm just hearing reports, I want to hear that you are standing firm, united, one spirit, one mind. And I also want to hear that you are striving to advance the faith of the gospel. Number three is this. What does it look like? How do we live a life worthy of the gospel. It involves confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ. Verse 28 is a tricky verse. It's the most challenging verse in this passage. Paul's continuing his thought. He wants to hear that they are not frightened in anything by your opponents. There's a lot of debate about who are the opponents? Who are these people opposing the Christians in Philippi? I think the answer's got to be pretty obvious. I think it's got to be the exact same people who opposed Paul when he preached in Philippi. And just in your mind, go back with me to Acts 16. Paul's trying to, to go on this mission trip. He wants to go in one direction, and God redirects him and essentially sends him to Philippi. And he goes to Philippi, and he finds Lydia, and he shares the gospel with her, and she becomes a believer And then before too long, he meets this slave girl possessed by a demon. And her owners are using her to make money. They don't care that she's suffering. They don't care that she's in bondage to this demonic power. They only care about using her to make money. And after many days of this girl crying out and bothering Paul and interrupting, Paul casts this demon out of this girl. And her owners, they're not relieved that now she's not suffering. 
They're not so grateful that Paul set her free from her affliction. They're angry with Paul. They've lost their source of money, their source of income, so they begin to oppose Paul. They start a riot. Paul is beaten. They have Paul thrown in prison. And you remember that night in prison, there's sort of a a jailbreak situation, and Paul talks to the jailer, and the jailer gets saved. And then the very next day, Paul leaves town. My question is this. Those men who were so cruel and selfish and loved money so much that they didn't care about the suffering of a young girl and used her to make money and started this riot where Paul was beaten and had Paul thrown in prison, do you think for a second that as soon as Paul left town, they just got over it all? As soon as Paul leaves town and moves on to Thessalonica, that they just say, well, no harm, no foul, no worries. No, they look around at Lydia in the slave girl, in the jailer, and they associate those people with Paul, and they're opposing the church in Philippi. So that's who I think is opposing them. Then the question becomes, how do you oppose the church in Philippi? What did that look like? And again, I'm going to give you my best guess. I told you Philippi was a Roman colony, right? It's this official outpost of Rome. And as a Roman colony... All of the civic functions in Philippi would be accompanied by the profession or the the saying out loud that Caesar is Lord. Sort of like in the United States. If you go to a football game or you go to a basketball game or you go to some sort of political rally, maybe they'll sing the national anthem. And there's sort of this expectation, despite the craziness of our country, there's still sort of this expectation that you're going to stand up, you're going to be respectful, you're going to put your hand on your heart, maybe you're going to sing along. It's sort of expected that you would participate in that. And in Philippi, the expectation was when we get together and it's a football game or a theater or whatever we're doing, And everyone, it comes time for everyone to say Caesar is Lord. You're going to say it because we're a colony. We're citizens. And we like the status and the prestige and everything that goes along with that. It wouldn't just be expected. It would be required. And we know from church history that Christians who lived in the Roman Empire just refused to participate. When it came time for everyone to say Caesar is Lord, the Christians said, I can't say that. Jesus is Lord, and I can't say that Caesar is Lord. And at various times and various places, they were persecuted because they wouldn't go along with what was expected or what was required of them. And we know from church history that if you ever had a bone to pick with a group of Christians, this was an easy issue that you could bring up and you could throw in their face. You could almost frame them and say, look, here we are in Philippi. This Roman colony, this great city, all the prestige, all the great things that come with being Romans. And these Christians are too good to say Caesar is Lord. And they suffered for it. And they were persecuted for it. And what is Paul's advice? He says, verse 28, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be scared. They're going to throw that issue in your face. They're going to try to persecute you just like they persecuted me. Do not be frightened in anything. And then he says something shocking. He says, when you are not frightened, when you are courageous in the face of that sort of persecution, it's a sign, a double sign. It's a sign that your enemies will be destroyed, and it's a sign that you will be saved. 
your courage in the face of that kind of persecution. It reminds me of a guy named John Knox. John Knox lived in Scotland, and he lived in Scotland in the 1500s during the reign of Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary was Catholic. She was aggressively Catholic. She wanted all of Britain to be Catholic. And John Knox was a Protestant. He was one of the reformers, and he refused to go along with her program for making Britain entirely Catholic. He preached the gospel, and he refused to bow down. And eventually, he was sent into exile. He had to leave Britain. He had to go to another country. And as soon as he could, he came back to Scotland, and he started preaching the gospel. History tells us that he was a small man, unimpressive in stature, not physically imposing, And yet, he finds himself under the thumb of somebody named Bloody Mary. And without going into history, let's just say you don't get the nickname Bloody for being nice to folks. She's a tough lady. She took it seriously. And at Knox's funeral, this is what one of the ministers said. Here lies one who never feared the face of man. You could threaten him. You could persecute him. You could send him into exile. It didn't faze him. He wasn't scared. He never feared the face of man. Why? Historians would tell you, and those closest to Knox would tell you, it's because he feared God. Look at Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We fear God, not man. And Paul says, they might persecute you. They may back you into a wall. They may try to set you up. They may try to hurt your businesses. They may try to hurt your families. They may try to hurt you. Don't be afraid about any of it. Ultimately, all they can do is kill you. And when you're courageous in the face of that kind of persecution, it's a sign that you will be saved and that your enemies will be destroyed. Now, here's the facts. You and I live in a great country. We don't have to worry too much on a day-to-day basis about persecution, about people coming after our money or coming after our families or coming after us because of our faith. But you also know as well as I do that our society does not seem to be getting better and better and better with each passing year, but we sort of seem to be on a slippery slope of sliding into chaos morally, spiritually. And the day may come in our lifetimes where we have to exhibit this kind of courage. Not to sit back and to whine and to complain about it's not fair. Not to sit back and whine about the good old days when you didn't have to worry about that in the United States. But just to do what Paul told his friends in Philippi to do. To be confident in Christ. To be courageous in our faith. And to stand up. And it's a sign of our salvation and of the destruction of our enemies. Last idea is this. What does it look like to live worthy of the gospel? It involves suffering well. Suffering well. The last two verses of this passage were not written by an American. I promise you that. Paul says, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. That verse, verse 30, he's not trying to minimize their suffering, but he is trying to remind them, you're not the first ones to suffer. 
You're not the only ones to suffer for your faith. I experienced that when I was in Philippi. You saw it firsthand. I'm experiencing it now, Paul says. And you can see it at a distance. So you're not the only ones that this has ever happened to. And look what he says in verse 29. It's such an interesting verse. That word granted is literally the verb form of the noun grace. He's saying you have been graced. You have been gifted. Two things. It's been granted to you, graced to you, gifted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should believe in him. Your faith is a gift from God. They knew that firsthand. Think about Lydia, Acts 16. Paul comes to town and he starts preaching, and what does the text say? The Lord opens her heart to listen to what Paul was saying. It wasn't just that Lydia was smarter than everyone else, it's that God's grace was poured out in her life. So he's gifted them, he's graced them, faith in Christ, and look what else he's gifted them. He's graced them, suffering for Jesus' sake. I don't know if you and I are so up on the scriptures, our minds shaped by the New Testament, thinking biblical thoughts that we think of suffering as a gift of God's grace. But that's what Paul's saying here. The fact that you suffer for Jesus is God's grace to you. And when I read that this week, I immediately thought of Acts 5. The apostles have been preaching. They've been hauled in and they've been told to be quiet and they refuse to be quiet. They've been beaten for their faith. And this is what we read in Acts 5.41. They, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's a pretty good summary of what we're talking about this morning. They suffered and they realized this was a result, a gift, something we receive from God and his grace. We're counted worthy to suffer. And their response is what? It's not to whine, it's not to bellyache, it's not to call a lawyer, it's to rejoice. And that's what we're talking about in Philippians. How do we end up being people, families, a church that worships with joy regardless of our circumstances? That's what rejoicing is. It's worshiping with joy. And what Paul's saying to the church this morning, what he's saying to his friends in Philippi and he's saying to us is, if you're going to be people who rejoice, who worship with joy regardless of your circumstance, your life has to be one that is worthy of the gospel. That's way more than what you do when you meet in this room. But that's who are you when you leave this room? What kind of life do you live when you walk outside of this room? And Paul's charge for the church, whether in Philippi or Odessa, is your life must be worthy of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Father, we stop this morning, we pause after listening to your word, after reading your word simply to acknowledge that you have been gracious to your people. Your grace and your mercy have been poured out in our lives. Father, the gospel of Jesus Christ has given us great hope that sinners can be reconciled to a holy God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You don't call us to 
pay you back. You don't call us to earn our salvation. You just call us to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus. And Father, I pray for the people in the room who have never truly responded to the gospel. And I pray that today they would do that. That you would open their hearts to listen and to believe. Father, we pray for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus. We have responded to the gospel. And we pray that you would press in on our hearts the importance and the necessity of living lives that are worthy of the gospel. Not to earn our way with you, but because the gospel of Jesus changes us from the inside out. Father, if there are things in our lives this morning that need to be turned from, repented of, we pray that you would show us those things, that your spirit would bring conviction to our hearts, and that even this morning you would mold us and shape us into the kind of people who live lives worthy of the gospel. Father, we believe that you can do that, and we ask you to do it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.